Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening, as always. In the last episode of our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we discussed the aftermath of the climactic events of 1494 in the city of Florence, Italy. The French invasion of Italy had an immediate destabilizing effect across the entire peninsula. The city of Florence was thrown into chaos in the wake of the French army's advance, resulting in the ousting of the city's leader, Piero de' Medici, also called Piero the Unfortunate. Fortunately for Florence, they managed to avoid the fate that had befallen several other cities in Italy, thanks in part to the actions of Savonarola, who personally negotiated with the French king, Charles VIII, convincing him to not sack the city. The French did go on to briefly occupy the city as per their agreement. Tensions ran high during this time, but Savonarola urged the people of Florence to remain peaceful, and ultimately, the French army decamped the city without any major incident. From Florence, the French army continued their march southward, practically unopposed, and then reached Rome by New Year's Eve 1494. By this point, King Charles was joined by Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, the future Pope Julius II and the sworn enemy of the current Pope, Alexander VI. Having ingratiated himself into the king's inner circle, the cardinal urged Charles to force the resignation of Alexander VI. There would have been ample cause for Charles VIII to do so. Even before he had ascended to the papacy, Alexander VI, also known as Rodrigo Borgia, had already acquired a reputation for depravity, greed, and megalomania. Once in office, his actions only continued to court public controversy. However, despite the very impeachable character of his offenses, it would seem that Cardinal Della Rovere gravely underestimated both the naivete of the French king and the cunning of the Borgia Pope. Once he was in Rome, Charles VIII lined up his artillery outside the Castel Sant'Angelo, the medieval fortress near the Vatican where Alexander VI had taken refuge. The Pope initially refused to come out to meet the king, but soon changed his mind when a single shot from a French cannon reduced a section of the fortress's walls to rubble in an instant. As soon as the king was in the presence of the Pope, he immediately bowed before him and attempted to kiss his feet. Alexander VI, surely very relieved and somewhat likely amused, helped the king back to his feet. After this point, the question of the Pope's resignation was never again broached. Nevertheless, the city of Rome now found itself in much the same position as Florence had a month earlier. The city was occupied by the French army, and the Pope was compelled to contribute to Charles VIII's campaign, both spiritually and materially. To the first end, the Pope gave his blessing to the French war effort. To the second, when the Pope saw the French army off from Rome in late January of the following year, he saw to it that the French were given no less than 19 mules carrying crates filled with valuables gold-plated objects, precious gems, tapestries, and the like. Additionally, the Pope sent along with the French army two men as hostages, one of whom was his own son, Cesare. The other hostage was Sem Sultan, the brother of the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid II, and a claimant to the Ottoman throne. How exactly this Turkish prince ended up in the Pope's custody in Rome is frankly a long and convoluted story, likely one that I will tell in full another day. However, Sem Sultan died suddenly two days after the French army entered the city of Naples. The exact circumstances of his death are not known for certain. Some historians suggest that he was poisoned, although it seems more likely that he simply died of pneumonia. That digression aside, the French army departed from Rome on January 28, 1495, 
with their hostages and a caravan full of treasure-laden mules in tow. After two days on the road, Cesare Borgia slipped away from the army, taking half of his father's gifts along with him. Upon closer inspection, the French discovered that the remaining crates that they still had with them were, in fact, empty. Charles VIII was none too pleased with this development, but he did not turn around and continued on to Naples, which he reached by February 22nd. The king of Naples, Alfonso II, fled the city in advance of the French arrival. A deeply superstitious man, he had been convinced by a series of ill omens to abdicate the throne. He then took refuge in a monastery near Messina, on the island of Sicily, where he stayed for less than a year before dying there at the age of 47. The new king, Alfonso II's son, was crowned as King Ferrante II. Hardly a month after his coronation, the new king of Naples fled the city and traveled to Zaragoza in Spain, the seat of his cousin, the confusingly similarly named King Ferdinand II of Aragon. In the king's absence, the French were able to take Naples completely unopposed. Charles VIII took up residence at the Castel Capuano, a palace which had belonged to the old Angevin rulers of Naples, his ancestors. Over the course of the next few months, Charles VIII, the would-be king of Naples, according to author Paul Strathern, quote, indulged his gargantuan sexual appetite on the aristocratic ladies of Naples and their virgin daughters, whilst his soldiers indulged their similar appetites on the less virtuous women of the city, completely unaware that syphilis had just reached Naples by way of Spain from the New World, end quote. In fact, the French occupation of Naples in 1495 coincided with the first major outbreak of syphilis on the European continent, although the word syphilis would not be coined for another 35 years. In the meantime, the name of this malady varied by country. The French called it the Italian disease, while the Italians and Spanish called it the French disease. While people in any given country had the tendency to blame the spread of syphilis on their geopolitical rivals, the real culprit here appears to have been the Spanish, who transported the disease back to the Old World from their voyages to the Americas. Specifically, the patient zero, in this case, was likely a group of Spanish mercenaries who were serving in the French army. While Charles VIII and his men recklessly spread the French-slash-Italian-slash-Spanish disease in Naples, the various cities of Italy were in the process of forming a coalition to combat French hegemony in Italy. The primary mover behind this alliance was none other than Pope Alexander VI. Although he had roundly outsmarted the French king, he was determined to avenge his humiliation at his hands and to prevent him from doing so again. At the same time, the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Il Moro Sforza, had grown wary of Charles VIII's ambitions, despite the fact that he had been the one who invited the French to intervene in Italian affairs in the first place. He feared that the French king's ambitions would go beyond the conquest of Naples, and he was all too aware of the fact that the French royal family did possess a claim to the Milanese throne as well. Therefore, when Alexander VI made his diplomatic rounds throughout Italy, he found a willing ally in the Duke of Milan. The Duchy of Milan and the Papal States formed the basis of an alliance that would become alternatively known as the Italic League, the League of Venice, and the Holy League of 1495. Other Italian states, such as the Merchant Republics of Genoa and Venice, would join the League in short order. In fact, the only major Italian state that maintained its neutrality in this conflict was the Republic of Florence, thanks in large part to the continued influence of Savonarola on Florentine politics. Savonarola still believed that Charles VIII was the new Cyrus, whose coming he had long prophesied, who was destined to exact the Lord's vengeance upon the sinful people of Italy. 
Speaking of Savonarola, it is about time that we return to the protagonist of this story. Where we last left Savonarola, the friar had just announced his retirement from politics in late January 1495. After the French army departed from Florence at the end of the previous year, the citizenry of the city had finally set to the arduous task of reforming the city's government in the wake of the deposition of the Medici, a process that Savonarola was very closely involved in. Decades of undemocratic rule had done great damage to Florence's once-vaunted republican institutions. Over the years, power had passed from the hands of a larger ruling class of oligarchs to a much smaller one that was concentrated around the Medici and their collaborators. Now that the Medici had been overthrown, the people of Florence found themselves at a crossroads. What form would their new government take? Would it be a return to the pre-Medici status quo, or would it be a true republic, a government of the people? Savonarola came down firmly on the side of the latter option. His ideal form of government was a sort of theocratic republic. In this arrangement, political power would be devolved into the hands of the masses, but as Savonarola was always keen to remind his congregation, God would remain the true ruler of the city. In his conception of politics, republican revival and spiritual virtue went hand in hand. It was not possible to have one without the other. Of course, wresting political power back away from the ruling class was a daunting prospect, to say the least. Savonarola's most pressing task at this time was to create a great council. This was to be a new political organ consisting of all tax-paying male citizens aged 29 years or older. The great council would be given wide-ranging legislative and executive functions. In effect, it would be the body in which the sovereignty of Florence would reside. The Great Council convened for the first time in late December 1494, but for Savonarola, this was merely the beginning of his work. Next, he sought to limit the power of the Signoria, Florence's chief executive body, by divesting it of the ability to sentence anyone to death with only six votes out of nine. This was the infamous Law of the Six Beans, so-called because the magistrates of the Signoria voted using beans. Predictably, the Signoria resented having this power stripped away from them, and so they recruited two rival clergymen to preach against Savonarola's continuing influence in the political sphere. For a moment, it seems as though their efforts had succeeded, as on January 25th, Savonarola abruptly announces resignation from politics. For this, he did not state a reason, although we can infer that the friar was physically and mentally exhausted from the events of the past three months, during which time a number of people very close to him had died. Savonarola's untimely retirement was greatly upsetting to many, but ultimately was not fated to last very long, only for five weeks. On March 1st, the friar took to the pulpit again to deliver his yearly Lenten sermons. Two and a half weeks later, on March 19th, Savonarola scored a major victory. On that day, the Great Council voted overwhelmingly to abolish the Law of the Six Beans that he had railed against. From henceforth, any sentence passed down by the Signoria could be appealed to the Great Council, whereupon a two-thirds majority vote would be necessary to confirm the sentence. Furthermore, any and all persons convicted of political crimes in the past two years were pardoned. This included not only those who had run afoul of Piero de' Medici, but also Medici partisans who had been caught up in political repressions following Piero's deposition. Savonarola was elated at these developments. For the longest time, he had preached that a general peace among the people of Florence was necessary to accomplish any sort of government reform. A quote from a sermon delivered shortly afterwards, quote, See, you have not been able to resist. 
This has been done by God. You have prayed as I meant you to do, and the prayers of the good have had this effect absolutely. End quote. On March 24th, Savonarola informed the people of Florence of a most spectacular vision that had come down to him from heaven. The details of this vision were written out in a tract that he published later that year, but because this description goes on for over a hundred pages, I will simply relate the gist of it. According to Savonarola, he saw himself ascend to heaven, where he stood before Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. Savonarola would later write down the words that Mary spoke to him, quote, The city of Florence shall become more glorious, more powerful, and more wealthy than it has ever been. All the territory that it has lost shall be restored, and its borders will be expanded further than ever before. With the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you have prophesied the conversion of the infidels, of the Turks, and the Moors. All this and more will take place in due time, soon enough for it to be seen by many who are alive today. But as you have said, the renovation of the church cannot take place without the suffering of many tribulations. Therefore, let it not seem strange that Florence shall have her own share of troubles, though she shall suffer much less than the rest. The good citizens of the city will be less afflicted according to their conduct, and in particular how severely they pass laws against the blasphemers, the gamblers, the sodomites, and other evildoers. Diarist Luca Landucci reported, quote, All these things he spoke as a prophet, and the greater part of the people believed him, especially quiet people without political or partisan passions. Meanwhile, off to the south in Naples, Charles VIII made the decision to return to France with the bulk of his army. It seems that at some point during the last year, the king had abandoned his ambitions to utilize Naples as a staging ground from which to launch a crusade against the Ottoman Empire. In Florence, news of the formation of the Holy League, as well as the king's departure from Naples in mid-May, had been the cause of great anxiety. Many in Florence remained wary of the true intentions of the French king. After all, they had failed to extract a concrete promise from him that he would not attempt to reinstate Medici rule in Florence. On May 16th, these suspicions were only heightened when two noblemen were arrested, charged with conspiring to facilitate Piero de' Medici's return to Florence. The arrival of Charles VIII was meant to be a signal for the Medici loyalists to stage an uprising. Despite accusations that he wished to see the Medici restored, and despite his seeming reluctance to carry out his divine mission to reform the church, Savonarola never lost his faith in the new Cyrus that he had so often told about. On June 17th, he met with the king at the town of Poggibonsi, midway between Florence and Siena, and he traveled with the army for some time before returning to Florence. During this time, he met with Philippe de Comines, an advisor to the king. Comines later recalled their interaction, quote, He has preached that the present state of the church will be reformed by force of arms. This has not yet happened, although it very nearly did while the king was in Rome. He still insists that it will happen. I also asked him if the king would be able to get back to France without danger to himself in view of the great army which has been assembled by the Venetians, about which he seemed to know more than I did. He replied that the king would have to fight his way back, but his courage would send him through, though he might only have a hundred men with him, because God, who has led him there, would also lead him back unharmed. Reporting back to his congregation on June 20th, Savonarola informed them that Charles VIII had no intention of attacking Florence, nor did he seem to have any desire to see Piero the Unfortunate reinstated as the city's ruler. The French army marched north through Tuscany without any major incident. The following month, Savonarola's prediction that the French would not be able to leave Italy without a fight came to pass. 
Continuing to the northwest, the French found their path through Lombardy blocked by the Army of the Holy League at the town of Forvono, southeast of the city of Parma. The coalition army outnumbered the French by two to one, but the French were supported by their formidable artillery. The battle unfolded over the course of eight hours, during which time nearly a fourth of the League's soldiers were killed. Although the French suffered relatively few losses and were able to successfully continue their retreat through northern Italy, the illusion of French invincibility had been broken. The Italians had not been able to inflict too great of a loss on the French during the battle, although they had managed to capture or destroy a large portion of the French supply train, resulting in the loss of much of the loot that they had acquired during their invasion. Pope Alexander VI was none too pleased with this overall result. He had hoped to destroy the French army completely and to capture the upstart king. He laid the blame for this defeat on Florence's failure to join the Holy League, something that he quickly blamed on the malign influence of Savonarola. The friar had been known to the Pope for some time already. His constant denunciations of corruption within the church hierarchy and his calls for the institution to be reformed had certainly not gone unnoticed by the Vatican, where they had been begrudgingly tolerated. By siding with the French and foiling his plans to exact revenge on Charles VIII, Alexander VI believed that Savonarola had simply gone too far this time. It was at this time that Savonarola had truly drawn the Pope's ire, which began a rivalry between the two that would go on for the next three years. On July 25th, the Pope wrote a missive to Savonarola, quote, We have heard you proclaim that what you have said concerning future events does not proceed from yourself but from God. Therefore, we desire, as is the duty of our office, to discourse with you so that we may gain a greater understanding of what is agreeable to God and to put it into practice. Thus we exhort you, in the name of holy obedience, to come to Rome without further delay, where we shall receive you with love and charity. End quote. Savonarola would not so easily be fooled by the deceptively friendly and diplomatic tone of the Pope's missive. He was, just as much as everyone else, aware of the Pope's true character, and he knew that the second that he set foot in the Vatican, he would immediately be assassinated or imprisoned. Thus, he sent a message back to Rome duly explaining why he would unfortunately be unable to accept the Pope's most kind invitation. Quote, Blessed Father, my most ardent desire is to behold the shrine of the apostles Peter and Paul in order to worship the relics of those great saints. And still more willingly, I would have gone there now that the Holy Father has deigned to summon to him his most humble servant. But I am barely issued from a very serious malady that has forced me to suspend both preaching and study, and which still threatens my life. Furthermore, I am bound rather to obey the benign purpose of the command than the mere words in which it is framed. Now, inasmuch as the Lord, by my means, has saved the city from much bloodshed and subjected it to good and holy laws, there are many adversaries both within and without the city, having sought to enslave it, and having been confounded, instead, now seek my blood, and have frequently attempted my life by steel and by poison." Wherefore, I could not depart without manifest risk, nor can I even walk through the city without armed escort. Although this newly reformed government that the Lord has been pleased by means to give to Florence is not yet firmly rooted, and is visibly endangered without my continued assistance, wherefore, in the judgment of all good and experienced citizens, my departure would be of great injury to the city and of scant profit to Rome. I cannot suppose that my superior would desire to see the ruin of an entire city, and therefore trust that your holiness will graciously accede to this delay, 
so that the reform begun by the Lord's will may be brought to perfection, since I am certain that it is for the good of the same that he has raised up those hindrances to my journey. Accordingly, I beseech your holiness to graciously accept my very true and plain excuses, and to believe that it is my ardent desire to come to Rome immediately. Wherefore, as soon as possible, I shall spur myself to set forth." End quote. No doubt Savonarola's response to the Pope's summons was interpreted as a brazen affront to papal authority, and while he had written this letter, no doubt fully cognizant of the Pope's true intentions towards him, Savonarola, the stickler for the truth that he was, had not exactly lied to his holiness about the reasons why he could not immediately travel to Rome. It was true that he had many enemies who wished to see him dead, the Pope included. It was also true that Savonarola believed that he was the only factor keeping the project of government reform alive. Finally, it was also true that Savonarola's illness was a serious factor preventing him from traveling to Rome even if he had genuinely desired to do so. As I mentioned earlier, the tumultuous events of the past months have brought Savonarola to the brink of a total physical and mental breakdown, a fact that he'd cited as the reason for his brief retirement back at the beginning of the year. Now, shortly after dispatching his response to Rome, Savonarola was prepared to deliver what he called his farewell sermon. It seems that Savonarola was, by this point, possessed of a genuine belief that his time on the earth was coming to an end. Whether this anxiety was on account of the poor state of his health, or a realization of the danger that he was facing by provoking the Pope, is difficult to say for certain. In either event, on July 28th, Savonarola took to the pulpit for what he claimed would be his very last time. In spite of his condition, Savonarola claimed that it had been his love for Florence and for its people that it had enabled him to speak the truth before them that day. He then launched into a lengthy diatribe about Florence's seemingly endless list of mortal sins. He denounced parents who allowed their children to be seduced by poetry, fathers who allowed their sons to dress effeminately, gamblers who conducted their business publicly on the streets, sodomites whose crimes were simply too heinous to speak of aloud. His prescriptions were many. Dances must be abolished. Blasphemers should have their tongues cut from their mouths. Taverns should be made to close at dusk. Businesses should not be allowed to operate either on holy days or the Sabbath. Those sinners who were guilty of the crimes he described deserved no less than the death penalty. He railed against the Signoria, whose lax morality and poor leadership had allowed all these sinful acts to transpire within the city. Of course, it is worth noting that all nine members of the Signoria would have been present for this tirade. Ending on a note of self-pity, Savonarola stated, quote, I conclude that I've preached and wearied myself so much for you, O Florence, that I've shortened my life considerably by many years. O oh, my people, when I stand before you in this pulpit, I am always strong, but when I descend down these stairs, I believe that my ailments shall return, and that it will be some time before I see you once again. Therefore, I will preach to you once more, if I am still alive." End quote. Upon concluding his remarks, Savonarola retreated back to his modest cell at San Marco to make the finishing touches on a book that he had been writing for some time, entitled A Compendium of Revelations. A relatively short work, by Savonarola's standards at least, clocking in about a hundred pages, Savonarola had set to writing the compendium with the intention of providing a comprehensive account of his various prophecies and visions in his own words. According to him, Many of the public statements that he had made had been greatly distorted as they traveled about by word of mouth. 
By writing these things down in the exact words that he had initially used to describe them, Savonarola was hoping to set the record straight. He was fairly confident that there would be a large audience eager to read this work. He would soon be proven correct. Savonarola opened his book by explaining that God is capable of revealing knowledge of future events to individuals of his choosing, the prophets, so that they may spread word of this knowledge to the people more generally. Savonarola went to great lengths to explain to his audience his belief that the visions that he had been seeing and the voices that he had been hearing truly did come from God. First of all, he pointed out that divine revelation had extensive precedent in the Bible. How did Savonarola know that these revelations had originated from God and not Satan, perhaps? He claimed that he could tell that these visions were from God because they were, quote, infused with a certain supernatural light, end quote. The question as to whether or not Savonarola had truly heard or truly seen these things that he had claimed to have heard and seen is difficult to answer without any historical certainty. His belief in his visions seems sincere enough for whatever his own word is worth. Given what we know now, it may be that Savonarola suffered from genuine hallucinations, which could have been caused by a whole host of psychological factors. Were these hallucinations a side effect of the intense migraines which he was afflicted with throughout his entire life? Did he suffer from schizophrenia or psychosis? There is little doubt that, whatever the case may have been, his lifestyle would have contributed to whichever mental illness he may have been afflicted with. His daily routines of constant vigils and fasting meant that he ate and slept very little, and sleep deprivation and extreme hunger are both factors that are linked to hallucinations and psychosis. It is not my intention here to get bogged down in details that we cannot really know for certain. In any event, the important thing is that Savonarola himself was utterly convinced that his visions had come to him from God. And, more importantly, he had managed to convince many others of this fact as well. The remainder of his compendium consists of a brief retelling of his career from the time that he first arrived in Florence back in 1490, and of the events that he prophesied, many of which had since come to pass. The centerpiece of this book was his description of his most recent vision, that being his encounter with the Virgin Mary in heaven, as I described previously. Savonarola's Compendium of Revelations was first published in August of 1495. As it would turn out, Savonarola was right in assuming that there would be a large audience of people who were eager to read this work. His writing quickly spread far beyond the borders of Italy itself and were sought out by some of the most powerful and influential people of the era. Before the end of the year, the book had undergone five more printing cycles with copies in both Italian and Latin being produced as far afield as Paris and Ulm. Allegedly, even the Ottoman Sultan, Bayezid II, had requested a copy. Among others, Savonarola had hoped that the Pope would be among the many to read his compendium. In his response to the Pope, he had written, quote, Should your holiness desire greater certitude on the matters publicly foretold by me concerning the chastisement of Italy and the renovation of the church, you will find them set forth in the little book of mine that is now being made public. I was anxious to have these predictions put in print, so that, should they not be fulfilled, the world might know me to be a false prophet. But there are other things of a more hidden nature that must still remain veiled, which I may not as yet reveal to any mortal." End quote. If Savonarola had truly hoped that his little book would help the Pope to come to any sort of understanding with him, he would be sorely mistaken. Whether or not Alexander VI had deigned to read the book himself, or if the contents of it were merely reported to him by a secretary, is unknown. 
What we do know is that, far from convincing the Pope of the legitimacy of Savonarola's prophetic claims, it only seemed to confirm what he had long suspected. The friar, in addition to being a political nuisance, was a dangerous heretic as well. On September 8th, Alexander VI sent a dispatch to the convent of Santa Croce in Florence. Dropping all pretenses of friendship and nicety, the letter reads as follows, quote, We have heard that a certain Girolamo Savonarola from Ferrara, of the Order of the Preachers, is delighted with the novelty of a perverse dogma, and in the same insanity of mind, is misled by the shift of affairs in Italy, so that without any canonical authority he attests among the people that he has been sent by God and speaks with God, against the canonical decrees. Moreover, he asserts that Christ Jesus and God lie if he lies, and that anyone not believing his vain assertions therefore puts themselves outside the state of salvation. Although through our letters we have admonished him by virtue of holy obedience to come to us so that we may understand the truth from him and from his own mouth, Nevertheless, he has not only refused to obey us, but even impudently putting forth his writings to be imbibed in a single setting, which he had previously spouted rashly, end quote. A copy of this decree was also sent along to one Sebastiano Maggi, the vicar general of the Lombard Congregation of the Dominican Order, with a series of instructions on how to deal with the renegade preacher. Firstly, San Marco would be first placed under the jurisdiction of Maggi and the Lombard Congregation. Maggi was also tasked with carrying out a thorough public inquiry into Savonarola's activities, during which time the friar would be prohibited from speaking in public until the inquiry had been concluded. The prior's top three lieutenants in San Marco were also reassigned to different convents. The penalty for failure to comply with the Pope's demands was an immediate and automatic excommunication. Alexander VI had now brought the full might of his papal authority to bear upon Savonarola and his followers. The effect that these developments had on San Marco was immediate and devastating. Many of the friar's followers lost heart, but Savonarola was not one to bear such treatment lying down. He claimed that the brief contained no more than 18 different theological mistakes, and on the very same day that he received the missive, he sat to work penning a reply. Savonarola's response clearly demonstrated his massive intellect as well as his tendency towards pedantry. He refuted each of the Pope's claims point by point, basing his argument soundly in the, both the words of scripture and in canon law. Savonarola vehemently denied all accusations of heresy and of inadequate submission to the church. Preaching about future events was not forbidden, he claimed. In fact, this sort of thing had been encouraged in scripture. As evidence, he pointed to the book of Amos in the Old Testament, quote, The Lord God shall not perform his word unless he shall have revealed his secret to his own servants, the prophets, end quote. He insisted that the work that he was doing was righteous. Savonarola defended his actions, claiming that his prophecies had made the people of Florence repent for their sins and thereby saving the city from near certain destruction. If the rest of Italy would only heed his words, they too might be spared, and for this the people should be thanking God for speaking through him. Pope Alexander VI seemed to be particularly offended by Savonarola's claim that any who did not believe him were outside of the state of grace, so Savonarola went to extra lengths to elaborate on this claim of his. Quote, Since I know that many things I have said are from God, whoever obstinately does not wish to believe them, but resolves utterly to contradict them, shows that he is outside the state of grace. As I have said, grace, the light of faith, always inclines towards truth. End quote. Savonarola then went on to explain his reasons for not obeying the Pope's summons to Rome. 
He reiterated his points that his ailments prevented him from traveling, and that, and that were he to leave the safety of his convent, he feared that he would be assassinated by his enemy. These same enemies, Savonarola concluded, were more likely the people responsible for spreading these unscrupulous lies against him and his otherwise unimpeachable character. It was for that reason that Savonarola informed the Pope that until he recognized his innocence, he would make no effort to comply with his demands. It would seem that the sophistication of Savonarola's response finally served to convince Alexander VI of the threat that Savonarola posed to him. Here was a man who could not simply be cowed by sheer awe at the Pope's stature, nor could he easily be won over in a debate. Alexander VI therefore decided to use a new strategy to silence the renegade preacher. He would manipulate the politics of his own city against him. When, in refusing the Pope's summons to Rome, Savonarola had claimed that it was not safe for him to leave his monastery, he was not exaggerating the truth. On May 24th, he had been the target of an assassination attempt while en route back to San Marco from the cathedral. Although the friar was able to escape with his life, this attack nevertheless illustrates an essential fact. That being that Florence in 1495 was a society deeply divided along partisan lines, and Savonarola, despite his calls to end all partisan conflict, remained at the very center of this divide. Broadly speaking, the Florentine body politic had been split between Savonarola's supporters and his opponents. His supporters had come to be referred to as the Piagnoni. This word can be translated into a number of different English equivalents, although the translation I have seen cited most often is whalers. Originally, their opponents had bestowed this name upon them on account of their seemingly hysterical fashion in which they prayed, but for whatever reason, this name stuck with them. Savonarola and the Piagnoni were opposed by a group known as the Arabiati, a name literally meaning the enraged ones. A side note for any etymology enthusiasts out there, the name Arabiati shares a common Latin root with the word for rabies. Anyway, the opponents of the Arabiati created their own derogatory nickname for them, Pinzocironi, or the bigots. This name, however, did not stick. It is worth noting that the Arabiati were a rather large and politically heterogeneous group, united only by their opposition to Savonarola and the friars' continued influence in the secular affairs of the state and politics. The divide between the Piagnoni and the Arabiati may have been the primary fault line running through Florentine civil society, but it was by no means the only one. The reform of the city's government remained an ever-divisive issue. Should political power be entrusted to the capable hands of a small ruling elite, or should a more democratic route be taken? Then, of course, there was the question of the Medici. Although Piero the Unfortunate had been run out of town at the end of a pitchfork, there were still many within the city who secretly harbored a desire for a Medici restoration. There was also a faction of people whose politics were defined almost entirely by their opposition to the Medici. Members of this faction were known as the Greys, while their rivals were known as the Whites. Also proving to be particularly controversial were matters of foreign policy. The French invasion had turned the whole state of intra-Italian affairs on its head, and Florence was now struggling to discover its place in this new international order. Florence's backing of the French king, Charles VIII, had engendered the hostility of the other Italian states, a hostility that did not dissipate when the French army withdrew from the peninsula following the Battle of Forvona. The king had left much unfinished business in Italy when he had left. Within weeks of his retreat, a joint Aragonese-Neapolitan force defeated the garrison that the French had left at Naples and easily retook the city. But in the event that the French invaded again, it was widely believed that they would not stop with Naples. Again, it must be reiterated that Charles VIII 
had both an ancestral claim to the Duchy of Milan and a score to settle with the treacherous Pope Alexander VI. Rumors began to circulate that Charles VIII was weighing the possibility of invading Italy once again. In the event that these rumors proved correct, the people of Florence were divided on which side to take in this ensuing conflict. Some believed that the alliance with France should be maintained and strengthened, while others wished to orient the Republic away from France and towards the Holy League. The other pressing foreign policy issue was the ongoing war against Pisa. If you'll recall from episode 4, the citizens of Pisa, a city that had long been under Florentine rule, had taken advantage of the discord caused by the French invasion to declare its independence. The Florentines could simply not acquiesce to the loss of Pisa, being as it was the principal seaport through which Florence conducted trade with the outside world. So they engaged in a desperate effort to bring the city back under their hegemony. The war with Pisa would prove to be a far more protracted and costly affair than they had perhaps anticipated at first. Now, after this rather lengthy digression, it's worth noting that the contours of these various debates over issues such as the Pisan War, the Medici, and so on, largely corresponded to the main debate within Florentine society. For instance, Savonarola and the Piagnoni still supported Florence's alliance with France, while his opponents reflexively took up the opposing viewpoint. Savonarola and the Piagnoni were in favor of a more democratic republic, while the Arabiati were in favor of a government of elites. Even the alliances of the Whites and Greys were split pretty evenly between the Piagnoni and the Arabiati, with the Medici supporters tending to throw their backing behind Savonarola, and the Greys, tending to be as they were a more aristocratic group, opposed him. Anyway, this rather lengthy digression has been intended to illustrate the fact that Florence was a city rife with internal divisions. Internal divisions that outside actors, like, say, for instance, a vengeful pope in Rome, could theoretically exploit to their own advantage. And it is on that ominous note that I will end the narrative for today. In the next episode, we will watch as the rivalry between Savonarola and Alexander VI enters its next stage. With Savonarola's influence quickly reaching its zenith, his power would even threat to unseat the Pope himself. Desperate to avoid such a scenario, Alexander VI would be willing to resort to even greater lengths to stop the renegade friar from acquiring any more power and influence. But you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to see what happens next in this saga. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else you'd like to address to me, please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can always reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. Also, if you're interested in finding a way to support the show, consider checking out the show's Patreon page and the eBay marketplace where I'm selling used books. Links to both of these can be found in the episode's description as well. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'd like to thank you very much for listening, as always. Until two weeks from now, I am your host, Willem Connor, signing off.